0: Zach is right in saying that the question we are looking at today is who is Jesus. Um, it seems it seems a rather fitting sermon to give on the day that we hear about Elmer. Uh if if you ever got to know Elmer and, and if you didn't well in in some ways that's a its own experience and and <laughs> once you know Elmer you never not know Elmer. That's, <laughs> yeah. But uh his his favorite verse, as many of us know, and and certainly will be his his verse for meditation at his memorial, will be John 3.16. And and he would always comment that there wasn't really anything else you needed to know, which is the other Sunday School Answers Act with John (laughs) 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. We're asking that question because here in the statements that we have for faith, it, it, is, uh, it is the major part, the section that, that's the largest that we talk about the most. And really, we are not alone in asking the question, Who is Jesus? because no matter who you are and no matter where you live, at some point in time, you have to answer that question Who is Jesus? Especially nowadays, the the Bible has been translated into 2,000 different languages. The church is in every nation in the world. There are more Christians in the southern hemisphere than in the northern. There are more Christians in Africa than in the west. So there's nowhere that, that the question can't be asked anymore Who is Jesus? Uh, Last time we asked the question is, who is the father? And went right into what it means to have a creator and how that shapes our story, our value, who we are, and, and compared it to the stories of the world and the way the world tries to answer that question. We're confronted by this because we are an apostolic church, a church that holds to the teachings that has been passed down, not just through men like Elmer and, and the others that we have, we have said goodbye to this fall and winter, but for the generations that have gone, come before us miraculously. And I would even say as an argument for the very existence of God that a faith has been handed down for what is nearly 2,000 years without change. The faith that that I have is the same faith of the apostles, of the early church, of Martin Luther, of my grandparents, my parents. It's miraculous that that such a thing exists because we, we really cannot go a day without the news changing. We cannot go a day without every other thought or emotion we have suddenly being thrown off. But really this goes to show why we're even talking about the creeds. There are many churches that, that have decided that the creeds are not, not really a part of their worship anymore. or they're, they're not really worth talking about because they're written. But what we actually find in the creeds is, is clear statements about our faith. Not, not really actually just about our faith, but, but who God is and what he has done and what he has promised in a very clear and succinct way. Yurislaw Pelikan, one of the the major theologians of the 20th century, and, and at one time one of our own Missouri Synod Lutherans, once commented that the creeds are important because they answer the question, what is it that we believe? Not what is it that we feel, not what is it that we think, at that moment when we are asked what it is that we believe. Despite the emotions of the moment, despite the tragedies we may be in or the joys of our life, the fact is, is that our faith does not change. Most of us are used to living in a world where to ask somebody what they believe one day and to ask them the next, you're going to get two different answers. But here for us, it's unchanging because our God is unchanging. You'll notice that in our our intro to the, the service and even on the front of the cover, it says we believe. And we always start out our creeds by saying I believe, but the original text for the Nicene Creed started with we believe, not I believe. The Apostles' Creed was, I believe, because it was a baptismal creed. And you only baptize a person one at a time. But the Nicene Creed is we believe. That our belief is not on our own, but rather we are part of a community that believes the same thing. That we are not alone in our faith, but rather this faith unites us not to just those that are in the pew next to us, but to those who have come before us. And believe it or not, to those who are coming after us even the ones who are among us right now that cannot speak. The creeds are incredibly important. Incredibly important to our faith. Because if anything, when we recite these words on Sunday, they pull us away from ourselves and they bring our attention back to God. They teach us about a God who creates, a God who redeems, and a God who continues to go with us. They pull us away from ourselves and they pull us back to God. And they answer the question, who is he? So as we ask this question of who is Jesus, and we join in the rest of the world that ask that question, that every person, every nation, every tribe will have to eventually answer. In it, we hear that Jesus is God. And as as, uh, Zach pointed out, he's either God or he was a lunatic. Because certainly if we hear his words, we see that that he is someone who speaks with absolute conviction. And he's not the only one who's ever spoken to absolute conviction with absolute conviction. And he's not the only one who's ever come saying that he is God. In fact, you might know people in your life who think they're God. Maybe even some who pronounced it. (laughs) But Jesus is the only one who's done something that makes us believe he's God. He's showed us in many different ways how He is God, but just one of them, even if we look at it, is a way that He held complete control over the created world. In Hebrews 1, we hear of how things are made through Christ and that the Word of God comes to us through Him. In the Gospels, we see continuously how He goes and performs these miracles, raising the dead, healing the blind, restoring the lame. In fact, it's even after uh, where he he takes five and two and feeds an entire 5,000 people that the people who witness and see this miracle are so astounded that they follow him everywhere he goes. Who is this man? He not only speaks with absolute authority, he not only goes to those who are sinning and forgives their sins, But he provides nutrition for the body out of nothing. And so the world chases after him. I mean, after all, it's good to have a God who can restore the sick. It's good to have a God that can raise the dead. It's good to have a God who can kind of come into my life and and clean up the mess that I've made. Vacuum the carpet of my failures. That's nice. But as these people went out chasing after him and, and looking to, uh, to see another miracle that, that he might be able to perform for them, he begins to teach. He begins to teach them about the meaning of such things. They chase after him to be given bread once more and to be given fish. And he says to them that, you chase after me to see signs and see miracles. You chase after me to see see the way that I will just heal you. But any who come to me must eat of my body and drink of my blood. And they will know God. It's at that moment where it even says the 12 disciples, they they hear his words and they say literally, this is a hard teaching. This is a hard teaching for me to follow. And right after that, it said, more than half of the people, many called his disciples, turned around and went home. You see, if he was just a man who came to do nice pleasant signs and miracles. Well, we have those. But to have someone who comes to not only do miracles, but to reveal God to us, to bring us his body and blood, to bring us the word of God is another thing. He shows us he is God by not just doing and not just speaking, but by doing both. By bringing what he says in that same interaction is words of life and spirit. Because if he just raised the dead, we wouldn't understand how to stand over the grave of our brother Elmer but it's in his words of hearing him say that I am the life and the resurrection, that I am the way, that I am the bread of life, that we actually stand at that grave with hope, with knowledge of what Elmer will one day rise from that grave. John proclaims, that Jesus being the Son of God in flesh, that He is bringing grace upon grace into the world. Paul speaks of the moment that the Son of God becomes flesh, and he says, it is for the power of salvation for man that He comes. That what it takes for us is a fully divine God to come and die so that we might live. Because if he was just a miracle worker, he'd only be a man. And if he was someone who just spoke eloquently, he would only be a man. But if he is someone who can speak and do and speak with the authority of God, he is God. And he had to die for us. So that we would know that grace upon grace. So that we would know the power of salvation for man so that we would know that hope. And if he weren't God, we really wouldn't be gathered here still today. We still wouldn't be holding on to this faith that has been passed down to us. With Jesus entering into the world, with God invading his creation with his presence, everything changed. And something was created and came about. And it is us, his body. His body that still operates and still lives in this world. Still carrying forward this grace upon grace as we go out. Who with our words are able to forgive the sins as he has forgiven us. Who with our prayers are able to bring in hope and miracles into the world who by his authority are able to speak of the things of God and raise up the hearts and the heads of all those who are suffering. He's delivering this grace upon grace. E.J. Dion, who is a a writer for the Washington Post and a, a devout Catholic, someone who's been devout most of his life, tells a story about the first time he came to realize what it means to have the Son of God as his Savior. He said that every day he would walk from his home to the Washington Post building and he would pass by a uh, a homeless person outside that he just, you know, when you see somebody every day, you say hello, and and he did that and, and began to build up a relationship, although not ever knowing each other's name. As E.J. grew up in life, uh, he had kids, and, and one of his kids had uh, a terrible sickness as a child. And one day, the homeless person just asked him what, how things were going, and he he decided to open himself up and, and tell about what was going on with his son. The homeless man just responded in that way that that any good Christian would, you know. I'll pray for you. Well, eventually, they... They lost contact, and the man must have moved away to a, a different part of the city. And ten years later, he comes across him in the subway in Washington, D.C. And the first thing, first thing he asks E.J. is, how's your son? Ten years later, how's your son? I've been praying for him. He said that that was a moment where he understood what grace was. To see someone who was suffering in a way that E.J. had never known. Someone who was of very low status, speaking to somebody who had frankly made it in society. And to have E.J. on his mind. He understood that that's exactly what the Son of God has done for us that He came in humble estate, not with a bang, not with a flash, but with a whimper, into this world to bear all of us on His mind as He won grace for us, so has He won life for us, as He won spirit for us. This is the grace upon grace that we have received, and we've received it through a full God coming to die for us. Amen? Amen.